My name is Jessica Jackson. I'm a member at Church in the Square and now the Word of the Lord. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Matthew 1.17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Doing today? Good? Good. Why don't, I, I saw this. Okay, okay. That's why you got those seats. That's why you got those seats. Hey, would you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, the first book in the New Testament. If you see Mark, Luke, and John, go back to the left. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. As always, grateful to open up God's Word with you, especially when those up are doing this. So just thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, a couple of things before we jump into this. I just want to share with you all, we sent an email out to our members just yesterday evening, uh, officially nominating five new deacon candidates, which is really uh, a thrill for us as a church to see men and women step into this opportunity to serve in this particular way to, to meet the spiritual, physical, financial, different kinds of needs that our church family uh, has. So you'll be hearing more about these folks soon, but now members, you have 30 days to encourage, to pray for, if there are any concerns, to bring directly to them. Per Matthew uh, 18, if there's any uh, reason that you have a hesitation about that, please speak to these men and women directly. And again, you'll be hearing more uh, about these folks soon. By God's grace, we will bring them officially on as deacons, commissioning them for that work uh, in late January. Also, I just want to thank you. Thank you, groups. Thank you, group leaders. Uh, there has been much generosity as we look back over the year that the Lord has uh, worked through us. We, by our nature and our sin, are not generous people. Therefore, when we release resources, power, our voices, our money, whatever it is, we should worship God because that means he's at work in our hearts. We by ourselves do not give away freely the things uh, of this world. And so we're really grateful to see God's generosity through our church, in particular this holiday season. We had an opportunity to care for a number of families at Monroe uh, through Thanksgiving through the, at the school. And now at Christmas time, we've been able to meet different needs and desires, wish lists of people, of families from Monroe Elementary. And in fact, just today, many of you are bringing these gifts so that we can make sure they're distributed. So just thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the ways that the Spirit of God is at work in you. We just worship and glorify God because He does this kind of thing. And so we're really, really grateful for that. The great rabbi and scholar Abraham Joseph Heschel wrote, to have more does not mean to be more. To have more does not mean to be more. What a timely word for us uh, on the shore, just 10 days, my children informed me uh, from Christmas Day, they have been counting down and asking every digital device to speak back to them the good news of how many days are left until Christmas. 
Um, However, before we get ahead of ourselves, and you hear this sort of idea from the beginning, I I know it begins to happen in your heart because it happens in mine. Don't get at me for consumerism again. This sort of annual mantra from the church about how things are not my deepest satisfaction. We're not going to go there exactly, but things are not your deepest satisfaction. But it reveals something else about us. Because isn't it true what we experience around Advent season, around Christmas, around Black Friday, around all the way through the feverish returns in late January, is really just reveal stuff that is true about us the entire year. That's really scary. Not just this annual problem that we have. Wouldn't that be great if just annually we had some consumeristic, materialistic tendencies? That would be wonderful. And yet, don't these things just rear their head in a particular kind of way. Deeper still, underneath consumerism, I believe that there is an affection or rather a fear that gets revealed in us. Here as Heschel continues, as he identifies uh, quite accurately based on his Jewish faith as well as his acumen of the Hebrew scriptures, he continues this way, the power we attain in the world of space terminates abruptly at the borderline of time. But time is the heart of our existence. Accordingly, he makes the case that we are so consumed by the material things of this world is because we're scared to death of time. We don't want to orient ourselves around time, and so we orient ourselves around stuff. Because time is really clear. You only got so much of it, it's going to run out, and one day we're all going to die. And so right now, let's eat, drink, and be merry, and buy stuff over, out of our favorite websites and favorite stores, because tomorrow we're going to die. The scriptures begin, though, with a blessing, not of things, but of time. See, the very first instance that the Hebrew word for blessing, or rather for holy, is used in the scriptures, it's used for time, it's used for a day, the Sabbath. The first thing that is described as holy, as set apart, God makes this work of setting apart the Sabbath. This thing that we heard about just a couple of weeks ago as one of the commandments. We'll pick up that series uh, in the new year as we looked at the, the holiness of the Sabbath, of taking a day, of pausing, of setting it apart because God has said time has this holiness to it. This is why many Jews understand their faith to be a religion of time, aimed at the sanctification of time, the Sabbath therefore, is meant to be this context, not just of not doing things, but of redemption, of transformation, of pause, of reflection, of confession. See, as modern people, we have quite the dysfunctional relationship with time. And I'm not talking about those who are habitually punctual, and that's like the grid of holiness that you view everyone. If you're one minute late, you are an evil person in some people's minds. Or tardy, like that seems to be the thing, like you just show up late to stuff, you can't get over it, whatever. So we start telling you things start two hours earlier than they really do, and you're right on time. Rather, what's deeper under this is our big picture of time itself something that we don't really like to talk about. We don't like to admit that our world of space terminates, as Heschel says, on the edge of time. All that we've created, all that we've desired, all that we have longed for, all that we have purchased, one day burns up, goes away, because time runs out. That's a hard truth. We know that no matter what, no matter what we accumulate, no matter what we take in in this life, the clock is ticking, and one day it will tick no more. Our mortality, therefore, is a constant burden which we never fully pause and consider as deeply as we ought to. And so we keep acting, 
like we're going to live forever with all of our stuff. This has resulted in becoming a people, dare I say, who don't like to wait at all. See, we not only like our stuff, I want that thing not to show up whenever the postman comes around. I need two hours. I want that thing at my door. See, we tell ourselves that we got in line because it was a deal. I wonder if we got in line real early that day or purchased it immediately because something else was going on. Some brand of impatience was telling us that we would be somebody once we had that thing on our wrist, on our body, in our home next to us. See, what Sabbath is meant to do for us weekly, Advent does for us annually. It reminds us that at the deep core of who we are, we are to be a waiting people. We are to be a pausing people. We are to be a patient people. And it was not just a task for the people of God in years past. Here's one of the deceptions of Advent, that the people of God before Jesus came were called to wait. Now we get to have what they waited for. But if Christ has not just come, but he will come again, then you and I find ourselves just as our brothers and sisters from ages ago, waiting on the Lord, waiting that he might renew our strength, waiting that he might instill hope in us, waiting that he might bring to fruition the things that he has promised. This is what we will learn, I trust today, as we explore another name of Jesus, the Christ. So would you bow your heads and pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Heavenly Father, we'll just start with asking for your forgiveness. I'll ask for it. I'm, I'm terrified to just wait and be still. It just feels as though I'll be forgotten. It feels as though I'm missing the action. It feels as though I will be lesser than. I'll be viewed as lazy. I'll be viewed as out of touch. If I move with the rhythm of your word and not with the pace of this world, I'm terrified at what that will cost me. So God, I need this word today. Help me to not preach something that is not at work in me by your spirit. I know that you will do that work. And so please help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. I, along with my brothers and sisters, am not over this or next to this, but under the authority of this word. And so I pray for my friends, my brothers, my sisters, my neighbors, my family. Father, would you do a work in us? Not because you only work in a preaching moment, but you always work through your word. And so I pray, would your word breathe fresh life into us? Would it bring conviction? And may we not build up walls of defensiveness right now. I pray for my, my brothers and sisters who right now are going, I'm a real patient person. I can't wait to listen to this sermon for somebody else. Oh, help us, God. To not listen to this word for somebody else before we are impacted by it ourselves. Not because this is just a word for me and mine, but God, because that is how you work. You transform your people to become a transformative people. You bless your people that we might become a people who bless. You help us to become a patient people that we might engage a world that is busy hustling. To engage them with patience, with love and kindness. And so, Father, we pray that you would do the miraculous and eternal thing right now of breaking the shackles of this world that so tightly grip our hearts and our minds and our habits and our schedules and our wallets that we might honor you with all of our lives. So God, I, I just trust, I know that you do that kind of work here and now. And so I pray that you would help us. 
Help us to be changed. Help us to be transformed on the spot that we might become more the church you're calling us to be that one day will be presented to your son Jesus without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. So make us clean today, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Our verse today, rather our primary verse, summarizes the preceding 16. We've, we've heard the first line, or what we tried to make a case for last week was really the title of the book of Matthew in verse 1. And then we looked at this wonderful genealogy that many of you have committed to memory since then of these three different sets of 14 generations. If you're visiting today, no one memorized that. That's just a joke. It's quick. It's not great, but it's my humor. Verse 17 then comes and it summarizes the whole of what we have read through verse 16. Here's what it says again. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. If we were readers of the Greek language, then we would immediately pick up on the strong linguistic cohesion within this text. The word generations here in verse 17 begins with the exact same prefix as the word genealogy in verse 1, and father of or produced repeated throughout the genealogy. Matthew is proficient in his writing ability, and he continues to help us trust and understand the solvency of the identity of Jesus Christ. This hyper-intentionality that Matthew has then draws our attention to the specific word Matthew has chosen here to summarize Jesus' identity, which has sufficiently been proven through this genealogy over and over and over again. He calls Jesus the Christ. The Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's more like his title. A title we use very frequently, but understand quite thinly if we're honest. So what does this title mean? What does it mean that he is the Christ? Central to the meaning of this title is the root word, creo. It means to anoint, in particular with oil. The kind of anointing in mind is less about restoring or enhancing a physical body or well-being of a person being anointed as it is understood as a legal action. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, this anointing involves a pouring oil over the head of the one concerned. An act of anointing is thus linked with the cleansing purpose. The aim is to give to the one anointed power strength, and majesty. In the ancient Near East uh, culture, very few cultures actually practiced anointing, but some did. The Hittites, Syrians, Canaanites all practiced forms of anointing, but it was in the Hebrew story. It was particularly with monarchs and their priestly role. Through this Hebrew lineage, we see a very clear picture and culture demonstrated by God's people of anointing those marked for service. So in the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, the verb and noun for anoint shows up with incredible regularity. And consistently, the act of anointing is for purification and for setting apart. It is the marking of an individual for service in a ceremony. Throughout the Old Testament, we see these royal anointings of God's people, first as kings, like Saul in 1 Samuel, like David in 1 Samuel, and his son Solomon in 1 Kings. Not only so, but priests were anointed. So not just kings, but also priests were anointed for their service in the temple amongst God's people, described throughout the Levitical order in places like Leviticus 4, verse 3, 5, and 16. Not only so, not just kings and priests, but also prophets were anointed for their service of speaking the words of God, like Isaiah describes in Isaiah 61, 1. Places and objects also 
were anointed, but kings and priests and prophets find a central practice of anointing. Each of these actions of anointing were so elemental that these prophets, priests, and kings became known as anointed ones. Anointed ones. Not just it happened to you, but this makes up your identity. In this anointed role, their set-apartness is really a reflection then of God himself who is truly holy, who is truly set-apart. After all, he's the one who has made them so. Therefore, the role of a king, a priest, and a prophet is really to exemplify the characteristics and the nature of God in unique and distinct ways in their anointing. So as a king, he is anointed with authority and glory. Therefore, this person is called to lead God's people for God, reflecting the sovereignty of God. So when you were to see a king who was anointed in Israel, you were meant to see the sovereignty of God in fleshly form. As a priest, An anointing is about purity and holiness. This person was called to care for the people of God on God's behalf, reflecting God's love. Therefore, when you are cared for by a priest in purification and holiness and in shepherding, you are meant to experience the extravagant love of God. As a prophet, anointing conferred power and inspiration. This person was to speak to God's people for God, by God's word. Therefore, when you heard the words of a prophet, you were meant to hear the very words of God. This word then in noun form, anointed one, in the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament is Messiah. And so theologian R.C. Sproul kind of summarizes, helps us understand this. He says, in a sense, anyone in the Old Testament who was set apart and consecrated for a servant task was a Messiah, for he was one who received an anointing. They who were called And set apart and anointed, they were known as messiahs. And yet each of these messiahs failed royally to fulfill living in holiness, to live this set-apart life. Kings did not lead as God directed. Priests did not care for the people as God commissioned them. Prophets began to speak words for their own benefit, not for the merit of God's people, for God's glory. So as we look back through history, each one of these roles is found to immediately employ and be fulfilled by a particular person. But that particular person leaves much to be desired from every single one of these offices. This historic and recurring disappointment has led to a richer understanding of these roles through history. In other words, there's another story being told throughout the pages of history, throughout the pages of Israel's history, through the prophets, priests, and kings. Temper Longman, in his essay, The Messiah, makes very clear that any attempt to make these prophets, priests, and kings simply speaking about the future is ill-timed and out of step. However, as we begin to see these prophecies, these words, these commissionings, these anointings, these anointed ones begin to fall by the wayside, a longing gets developed in us. Even if we're merely reading it, how much more if we're living it? How much more do we desire true authority, true care, and true word from God as we continue to be disappointed by the prophets, priests, and kings that we would have met? But as we read, a kind of anticipation, a kind of expectation begins to pick up and say, I wonder if there's a richer fulfillment to these words. I wonder if there's more going on. See, through all this historical context that comes along with the concept of anointing and of anointed one, a lone figure, therefore, begins to emerge from the story of Israel as the true and better sanctified holy prophet, priest, and king from every single one of these passages. You see, 
Another anointed one was on the way. Another prophet, another priest, another king who would one day give complete and full and eternal access to God himself. Some of these texts that begin to cultivate this in God's people are like Jeremiah 23, 4. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Zechariah 6, 12 and 13, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. All these testify to a Messiah in the present, but began to pave the way for a true and better Messiah to come. And notice this figure, when you see these three texts and many others, this particular person will not be a prophet or a priest or a king, but all three together. See, this true and better Messiah would be the fullest embodiment of each messianic forerunner in time. This, we should understand, is to be Jesus Christ himself. And therefore, should be unsurprised to learn that the Messiah in Greek, Christos, is actually the English word Christ. Christ is the Messiah. To this end, for centuries, theologians have put this together for us because this is what they do well, right? They read the scriptures, they give us a system, a framework, a way of understanding it. And so today, I want to break it down for us in what's called the triperspectival view of Christ. You're welcome. You came to the right day. It came to the right moment. The triperspectival view of Christ, which coincidentally or sovereignly or providentially, I accidentally named my three boys in a triperspectival kind of way. Jedediah being a king, Micah being a prophet, Levi being a priest. So God has ordained before the foundation of the world that this be a primary doctrine for me and my family. This is a way of understanding Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah. So first we will consider Jesus is prophet. Moses knew that the Messiah would be a prophet in Deuteronomy 18, 15, also quoted in Acts chapter 3. And in Luke 13, 33, Jesus explains himself to be a prophet and regularly communicates that he's speaking not his own will, not his own word, but God's will, God the Father's will and God the Father's word. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago at many times in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In speaking fully and only God's word, Jesus is the true and better prophet we've been waiting for. Jesus is priest. Hebrews also makes plain the nature of Jesus in this priestly role. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews 5, 5 and 6. After all, it is Jesus who purifies his people for the sake of relationship and service to God the Father. Jesus purifies his people. But the incredible thing is the way that he purifies his people is not by making a recurring sacrifice every year, but by giving of himself once, forever, and always. 
So ultimately, in Jesus, we as a people are made set apart and holy because he is the true and better priest. Jesus is also king. Not only a kingship in that sarcastic and evil sense that hung above his head on the cross, king of the Jews, but this is part of his nature. He is a king who rules and reigns over his creation, over his people, namely as head of the church. Moments before his death, Jesus spoke about his kingship with one of the local authorities. John 18, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Don't you love that? If my kingdom was of this world, we'd be having this conversation. I would have been broken out and this would have been a completely different story. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered him, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In light of his kingdom, which is foreign to this age, a kingdom which is nevertheless breaking into this world, Jesus reveals that he is the true and the better king that we have been longing for. Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, Jesus is king. And his messianic identity is summarized well in Luke 4 as he quotes and reads rather from Isaiah 61. This is Jesus himself. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus speaks of his anointing as Messiah, and his words have this wonderful sense of all three offices. He is prophet. It says he proclaims. He is priest. He brings sight. He is king. He sets free. This is who he is. Yet no passage, perhaps, anticipates the arrival of Jesus as Messiah, the Christ, than Daniel 9. And yet, Daniel 9 is one of the most problematic passages in all of Scripture to fully understand. See, Daniel is praying to God and asking for help for God's covenant people, and an angel comes and responds to David in this, or to Daniel rather, in this way. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and, un- and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built Again, and with, with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end that there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, we get lost so much in sort of the numerification, all of these different numbers here, that we miss that Daniel makes six promises, or rather, the angel's six promises to Daniel. First, he will finish transgression. He will put sin to an end. He will atone for wickedness. He will bring everlasting righteousness. He will seal up vision and prophecy, and he will anoint the most holy. All of this is promised and will be achieved, but there's a lot of tension around here, isn't there? See, notice the anointed one, again, responsibly articulated as prophet, priest, and king. Verse 24 and 26 make that clear. And yet the anointed one is cut off. The anointed one will have nothing. The people 
of this anointed one will lay waste to a city, the sanctuary, and invite war and desolation. Gabriel says there's going to be a lot of trouble. This is not going to be really nice tucked in and pretty. How can the arrival of the anointed one lead to such desolation and such tension and such problems? Well, I think this is exactly why the Messiah has come. Think about the nature of Jesus' arrival. A prophet. He was the word made flesh. A priest. He made sacrifice for sins. A king. He inaugurated his kingdom. His rule and reign on earth. Yet as prophet, he has yet to be fully obeyed. As priest, his death has yet to be fully acknowledged and understood. As king, his kingdom has not yet been fully expressed and fully submitted to even by God's own people. See, the Christ has come, but even as he has come, there is much left to be done. So we anticipate not just that he will come, but that he will come again. This triperspectival view of Christ proves then his messianic status. Jesus is Messiah because he is prophet, priest, and king that the world has been waiting for, though they may not have even known it. And yet there's a lot of tension because his arrival, Jesus' initial arrival, the Christ's arrival is an inauguration, not a culmination. In other words, that Jesus has begun a work in his first advent that he will not culminate or bring to fruition until his second advent. Why is this so important? Because we often assume that Israel, God's people, used to wait, but now we don't have to wait anymore. But what the Scriptures actually teach is that in the way that God's people waited, in the way that God's people were called and taught to wait, so too you and I, the church, must wait upon the Lord until He returns. See, we think we don't have to wait. We, we, we don't have to wait completely. I want to be clear, we don't have to wait to know God through Christ. We don't have to wait to see what the people of God ached for for years, that Jesus would be the fulfillment, that Jesus has come. We don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit, thanks be to God. He is here. We do not have to wait for salvation. It is ours today in Christ. We do not have to wait for many things. However, the Messiah has merely inaugurated all of this. Can you even imagine how beautiful the inauguration, how much more beautiful the culmination? Now we know in part, then we will know in whole. Therefore, we are called just as much to wait for the second advent as God's people before us were called to wait for the first. And here's the thing about God. He kind of takes his time. Have you ever noticed that? If you've been following Jesus enough, you know that the great burden of the Christian life is waiting. You read something in Scripture, and then you look around, waiting, longing for its fulfillment in real space and time. See, God takes his time. After all, time belongs to him. He can take it as he pleases. He's never in a hurry. Have you ever noticed that? There's never a story, and God's like, oh, let's just get this done. Let's, we got a deadline. So he ought to be able to take his time as he pleases, because he owns it, and he does. God's relationship with time is anchored in his infinite nature. He, he has no beginning. He has no end. And the first words of Scripture presume his existence. In the beginning, God. And the whole of the Bible testifies and teaches his eternal nature. He is Alpha and Omega. He is beginning and end. He is the great I Am. And we can summarize the nature of God and his relationship with time in three distinct kind of realities, if you will. That God is over time, that God is outside of time, and yet God enters time. 
So God is first over time, and we read about this in Acts chapter 1. We'll remember this because we were in Acts for many of your lifetimes. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. So, when they had come together, they asked him, this is the disciples to Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. How much of us, how many of us have heard that answer to our prayers? God, I have a question. It's not for you to know. And we're like, God hasn't answered me yet. No, he answered. He just answered in a way you didn't like. There's a difference between God answering us and God answering in a way according to your will. See, God is over time. Jesus says that the Father has fixed by his own authority, not by a democracy. See, your prayers are not your vote. Our prayers are our submission to his sovereignty. He is over all things. He is the authority. He ordains. He orchestrates. He orders the seasons as well as the societies. He orders the solar patterns as well as the souls of men and women. We are told he holds all things together by the word of his power, by the work of his hand. And the brilliant thing, the God who holds all things together, all time in his hands, desires to hold all of your time in his hand as well. Not just in this big and lofty way, but in a personal and intimate way. He numbers our days. He is over and in control and in charge of time itself. Not only is God over time, though, God is outside of time. Second Peter chapter 3, 8 through 10, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, perish, but that all should repent, reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is outside of time. Can you imagine a being who has never been in a rush? who is not worried about a preacher finishing his sermon before your brunch appointment. That's godliness. (laughs) He's never had to hustle. He's never looked at his watch and wondered, how much time do I have left? He's never worried that a calendar date was going to creep up on him. Can you even imagine that existence? He is outside of time. He is unbound by the space-time world that we know. That means he is able to see all of time in a single moment at a glance. C.S. Lewis says all of time for God is as if now for us. He's outside of time. Freed from the shackles of time. That's what makes this third reality so brilliant. Not only is he over time, not only is he outside of time, but God enters time. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the mystery of his infinitude as Father, Son, and Spirit, God is able to remain over time, outside of time, yet paradoxically enter time, to be present with us. 
See, this, this God who is just over or outside is a God who is disconnected, who is a God who is holy but not intimate, but he also enters into time becoming something we could not possibly fathom, a friend to sinners, one who can identify with us in our grief. God is able paradoxically to enter and to be present with us, to be near to us, to ultimately in Christ die in our place and for our sins. The God who is over time, outside of time, allows his son to be bound by time that we might be freed from sin and to enjoy God forever. Why does all of this matter? Especially in relationship to the Christ or the Messiah. Well, let's just be honest. We are very much unlike God. We are a people under time. We are a people bound by time and enslaved by time. We are always running out of time, making up for lost time, wishing we had more time. Time is running out. Time is of the essence. Time is ticking. There's never enough time in the day. We have a restless relationship with time. Therefore, it is no wonder we have incredible trouble waiting on the Lord. The YouVersion Bible app is the most popular on the planet. Many of you perhaps are looking at it as we speak. And as they've done years past, they share their insights every year with the habits of their readership. Christianity Today just this week shared the app's research, their annual insights, and writer Megan Fowler explains what they discovered. In 2019, Uversion users read 35.6 billion chapters and listened to 5.6 billion chapters through its online mobile Bible app. To that we say, praise God, amen. In all of this reading, Paul's advice in Philippians 4, 6 was the most shared, highlighted, and bookmarked verse of the year. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. This was actually the third year in a row that worry, anxiety, and fear were central themes to the year's most popular verse. We are a worried people. And what more is worry than a fear which revolves around time? Worry is actually nurtured in our hearts. Do you know this? It doesn't just come and go. It's nurtured. It's cultivated. It's nurtured in our hearts when we are unsettled and unsure about the future and then look to ourselves for the resource to conquer whatever fear we have in the future. The future may be 30 minutes when you've got that meeting. The future may be in your, for your next meal or the next place to live. The future may be the prolonged well-being of your children. The future may be the afterlife. One way or the other, we have a fear of time and its uncertainty, the details that cause us deep anxiety when we just think about tomorrow. We, therefore, have become an impatient people. And our lack of patience in waiting reveals a deeper lack of faith in a God who is gloriously outside, over, and has entered into time. It's as if he never did any of that, how much we worry about time. As Dr. Timothy Keller writes in his timely book, Hidden Christmas, you cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting his promises. But when his promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. Yet, we judge God by the calendar all the time, don't we? God is always later than we would like, 
expect, demand, or feel comfortable with? You ever felt like God showed up too quickly? You're just like, oh, man. I wasn't even ready, God. <laughs> Let me clean up the house real quick. You hungry? See, when God is not on our timetable, we have real trouble trusting and loving him. In fact, I would dare venture to say we cannot love and trust God when we are enraptured with worry. Worry is the opposite of trust. Worry is the opposite of waiting. And I get it, waiting on God is incredibly tricky business. But the scriptures call us to wait on him repeatedly. David, the psalmist and king, knew much about this tension of waiting on the Lord. He, he wrote some of the most unnerving and yet comforting words in all of scripture around this subject. Psalm 13, 1 through 4. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be, or enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. Waiting is an incredible challenge. Waiting is hard. Waiting is convicting. And in fact, let's just be real. Waiting often seems pointless. I just need the information. I just need the blessing. I just need you to come through. Just give me what I need. That's the, I'll praise you for it, right? How many of I'll worship you for it. I just need the thing. See, what we even realize in our waiting is how much we have reoriented our lives around space and stuff and not trust in God's time. Just give me the thing. Yet waiting, hear this church, waiting produces something in us that comfort and immediate instant gratification knows nothing about. Waiting shapes something in God's people that comfort and whatever it is you're longing for can never actually produce in you. Something goes on in the believer who is longing for God, waiting on God, trusting in God, praying to God, meeting with God's people, confessing sin, longing for him to come. Something is being shaped in us as we wait. Marva Don believes this is why the Sabbath was instituted, a recurring habit every single week. Because in our rest, what do we do? We wait. She writes in her wonderful book, Keeping the Sabbath Holy, about what is below the surface of our discomfort with rest and waiting. A great benefit of Sabbath keeping, she says, is that we learn to let God take care of us. Not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. We don't like waiting because we don't like not being God. And worry becomes this impotent functional savior. It whispers to us, you can take back control. You can make your time. Think about the resources you have. Think about what you can do. Think about the way out of this. And we begin to mull over and nurture this arrogant concept that I'm going to make my way out of this. All worry is, is the thought process of introducing a possible way out and just continuing to mull over it. Is that going to work? Is that going to work? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Is that going to work? Is that going to work? A practice which accomplishes nothing but makes us feel like we're taking our lives back. 
in our worry, we cling to space and things and stuff instead of submitting ourselves to God and meditating on his nature and allowing his spirit to woo us, reorient us around the relationship he is meant for us to have with time, that he is a God who is over, outside, yet has entered in. We go to space and things. We consume when we're worried. We indulge when we're worried. We chase pleasure. We numb our spiritual wits. In worry, we watch too much television, neglect prayer and our responsibilities. In worry, we sleep around and try to feel physical satisfaction, though we remain emotionally and spiritually unsettled. In worry, we eat too much looking for comfort and drink too much looking to ignore the worry altogether, if but for a night. In worry, we lose ourselves in our work and try to build our future right now. In worry, we get angry. In worry, we get overwhelmed with sadness. We neglect the gathering. We don't respond to the text messages of the saints. Or we just leave the city, leave the school, leave the neighborhood, and leave the church family altogether to try to take back our lives. Whatever we do, we just want to short-circuit the process and find whatever relief we can from our waiting. This sometimes happens in really small ways. Driving over here, I was trying to remember all the details of it with my wife. But just a couple of weeks ago, our kids were just kids, right? Meaning fallen and broken like their dad. Not redeemed and gracious like their mother. (laughs) So, suffice to say, I was frustrated I was angry. I began to worry that my work was not going to get done. I began to worry that what would the sermon be like on that Sunday when I brought it before you because my kids were acting such a fool that week. And you know what I did late at night? That night, what I did, I turned to Laura and I just said, we need, we need something because I'm just frustrated. I'm worried. Let's order a meal. Now, Laura and I have been on a pretty strict regimen of eating in a particular kind of way. So I was not only throwing out what I had committed to, But I also was saying, food will comfort me in my worry, not the Lord. Ordering food that we brought to me, like I'm an emperor, right? 30 minutes, it'll show up. That's how I feel like I'm going to take control back to my life. Because I didn't want to tell God I'm losing it. I didn't want to tell God I'm impatient. I didn't want to tell God that my reputation hangs in the balance because my children won't listen to me. I didn't want to tell God the sermon is an idol that I think will make me satisfied. So I ran to food. Might be simple, but the scriptures call it sinful. So what's our hope in waiting? I give again to you the text that you have open, Matthew 1.17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. Parenthetical, and they waited. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. Parenthetical, they waited. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ 14 generations. And now we wait. What's our hope? That Christ has come. Though he was sovereignly delayed for three sets of 14 generations, the Christ has come. Knowing that Christ has come tells us that waiting on God is never in vain. Knowing that Christ has come melts worry away because God has always taken care of his people. Knowing that the Christ has come emboldens us to trust God even when we don't have all of the information. Knowing that the Christ has come gives us hope. And this is not a nebulous hope, church. 
This is not just like, trust in God. It's all good. Don't worry about it. His presence is literal and specific and real. See, it would be sufficient for God to just say, I'm with you. And we go, I got to trust it. He's God. That would be enough. But he gives us more. Christ has uniquely shaped our hope in that he has come as prophet, priest, and king. Can I preach it to you this way for just a minute? You might have to help me as I round third and head for home. We worry about words. We are a people constantly concerned about what people say, what they may say, about what is true. Well, a prophet has come and he has taken on flesh so that we would know the truth incarnate so that we would know what the truth is and that the truth would set us free from lies. In Christ, we are told who we are. In Christ, we are freed from every false accusation. In Christ, we are freed to hear his grace above the noise of this world. We do this by constantly going to his word to shape our ideas and our plans. We worry about our well-being and the well-being of others. As priests, he has made a sacrifice for sins to care for us body and soul. In Christ, no matter what happens, no matter what sickness takes, no matter what life expectancy says, he will restore in an eternally well body. We do this, we allow this sort of reality of this new creation that the Lord has made as priests. We do this by letting the church family take care of you from time to time. To not be a proud people, like I'm the only one who helps others, but when I need help, I just ghost all of you. We trust in the priesthood of all believers that ultimately is pictured in Jesus Christ by letting each other care for each other. Thirdly, we worry about social system and family all the time. As king, he inaugurated his kingdom, his rule and reign on earth. So then in Christ, we become a part of this stable society which has a perfect solution in mind, which has no end and no beginning, that the people of this kingdom would be eternally protected from ultimate harm because of King Jesus. We will always be together. We will always have this shalom and peace that all shall be well forever because Jesus is King. I think the way that we participate in this and reject worry is that we're actually about the renewal of all things. See, when we actually bring our worry in a context of community, in a neighborhood where there is injustice, where there is pain, when we become a people about kingdom initiatives, all of a sudden the feeble worries of this life melt away and we begin to do the work of the kingdom right here and right now. He gives us a particular kind of agenda because isn't it true? A lot of our worries are really feeble. We worry about stuff that the Lord never told us to worry about. And something about living in close proximity with kingdom people begins to shape an appropriate perspective. See, what Jesus does is that he puts worry to shame. Therefore, in Christ, we can faithfully wait on him. We can wait on his time. We can wait on his provision. We can wait on his justice. This is not inaction. This is trust. Jesus does this by stepping into time. Perhaps one of the most overlooked gifts of the Son of God is this particular grace. That through the incarnation, Jesus was taking on the boundaries of time for his Father's glory and for our good. He submitted to the human developmental process. He submitted to the rhythms of sleep, of day, of night, of winter, and of summer. He submitted to the routines of family and community. 
And more than anything else, he submitted himself to the possibility of death. Our greatest fear, time itself. When the Messiah came to earth, he became killable. Jesus Christ took on himself all of the worries which time produced in this life. And he championed all of those worries because he is truly anointed who put our worries to shame on the cross. You see, through the resurrection, Jesus proves he entered into time, but he also proves that he continues to be sovereign over it. So in trust, we must consider time. The scriptures teach us that Jesus is coming back. A particular kind of orientation that I think is foreign to many of us, that we are to be a people that eagerly wait the return of of Christ. Advent is a time to have that refreshed in our spirit, meaning that we believe the Son of God who showed up in real time to save and to restore will one day step back into time as He is still sovereign over it, and He will make all things new. He will make all things well. He will bring to completion what He began. Turn to the right to Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. Here we have Jesus just moments away from his ascension. Just turn to the right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Moments away from his ascension, that is, he's going to the Father's right hand after his death and resurrection. And the the writer Luke of Acts records it this way. So when they had come together, they asked him, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know (laughs) times and seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. I I imagine not many of your life verses, that one. It's not for you to know. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as He went, behold, two men stood by by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The disciples seem incredibly unprepared for Jesus to be away very long. They're expecting this quick turnaround. I can imagine in my own sort of biblical imagination that when Jesus says, I I will return, they're like, by lunch? Like, what do you mean? Because Jesus constantly promised, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And and where I go, there's, my father has many rooms. There's enough room for you. And so you can imagine they're like, he's just going to go get things ready and then come back and get us. And so these, these angels, though, they come. And as these guys are still staring at the sky, waiting, perhaps considering the short return, the angels soon come and make it clear they're going to be waiting a little bit longer. We're still waiting not for us to know the times and seasons, but notice in the text, we should have known waiting would have taken a while because we were giving an opportunity, a call, a work to witness as we wait. The disciples were given work to do in their waiting. Look at verse 9. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We spent a great deal of time on this, and so we will not summarize it too much, but in their waiting, they were meant to be witnessing. And it wasn't a box to check. They are told, you will not know the time, but the time will come when he will return. And in the meantime, go tell everybody everywhere about the Christ, about the Messiah, about the prophet, about the priest, about the king. Tell them what he has done and that one day he will come. 
In other words, our witnessing is our waiting as we are preparing for the return of the Messiah. Prepare for the king, therefore, through mission and submission to the king. Prepare for the priest through unity and confession and holiness. Prepare for the prophet through obedience and submission to his word, together as the people of God, making much of him in this neighborhood and city and world. In doing all of this, we rightly prepare for the Christ, the Messiah, to come again. Advent reminds us that the Messiah has come, and yet there is tension in this world that reminds us through God's word that he will come again. We are to expect him to come again. And as he came, he will come. May we prepare for him well. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not called us to some kind of hope which is disconnected from your story. You have proven to us that you are faithful to your word in the original, the first advent of the Messiah. And so may we be a people that wait with hope, wait with joy, wait with obedience, that one day the prophet, priest, and king, the Christ, the Messiah will come. And on that day, all shall be well. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare for communion, hear this from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. When we come to the communion elements, we participate In a time of personal examination, later the Apostle Paul states, Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. When we partake in communion, we remember God's covenant faithfulness. We have abundant grace offered through his son Jesus Christ. Communion reminds us of Jesus' time when he comes and communes with his family. It reminds us that we're children of God and we're co-heirs with Christ. And as we talked about today, we look forward to an eternal rest and a celebration where we'll continue with all the saints before Jesus on his throne. Communion is for those who are followers of Christ. If you don't know Jesus, we implore you on behalf of God to be reconciled to God. We would love to talk to you more and prepare you to take communion with us in the future. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that we have this opportunity, Lord, to be still, to be quiet, Lord, to reflect, Father, and, and just acknowledge, Lord, the time is in your hands. Thank you for the long-awaited Messiah that came. Thank you for your son Jesus, that he's prophet, priest, and king. Father, thank you that your son gave himself up for us. Lord, help us in this Advent season to continue, Father, to hope in Christ. Father, to live in the reality that one day we will commune with the saints 
with Jesus on the throne. Remind us, Lord, that your kingdom is here and now and is expanding. God, help us to continue to witness and be faithful to that. We pray these things in Jesus' name.